Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Today is our 35th anniversary. And uh, 35 years ago, she married me. And 35 years, she's hung in there. (laughs) And uh, I adore her for it. And uh, the Lord's been amazing. One more celebration item. We're going to finish through Acts chapter 13 today. Okay? So uh, if you will, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 as we see the gospel advancing to the world. It's page 867 if you're using one of the Bibles there behind the seats with that. I want for you to understand one of the things going on here in these initial uh, series as we're in the latter half of the book of Acts. I'm kind of laying out some groundwork here, and there's really three of the points you can even see on the, on the screen so far that I'm laying out. Um, I want to build on this. We want to be an abiding in Christ, last Sunday, spirit-dependent, and today, a to-our-world people. Next Sunday, I'm going to add to that doors of faith. Uh, abiding in Christ, spirit-dependent, door, I'm sorry, to our world, doors of faith, and then after that we're going to be building an axe on some practical things on how to be that as we move through the text. But I think as the gospel is going to the world, some groundwork things are being laid out for us, and so we're grabbing a hold of these here. We're in Acts chapter 13. David Peterson uh, said of Acts chapter 13 that he says, in so many ways Acts 13 is programmatic for the second half of the book just as Acts 2 is programmatic for the first half of the book. And there's just a number of things that correlate between Acts 2 and what Acts 2 leads into in the gospel going to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and what Acts 13 leads into the gospel going into the world. I mean, even in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the scene, and God begins doing a work through the Spirit of God. We also see here in Acts 13, uh, last Sunday, the Spirit of God comes upon the people in, in Antioch, Syria, and begins going out from there. And I could go on more and more and more, but there basically is a pattern here with what's taking. So Acts chapter 13 is really an important groundworking chapter for what unleashes from here. And in Acts chapter 13, we basically have two Sabbaths. We have one sermon. We have a bunch of people that are saved in Christ. We have a bunch of people that are ticked off uh, about it. And in that, we see uh, Paul and Barnabas Uh, They have a shoe-shaking moment, and the disciples of God have a rejoicing uh, in joy and the spirit moment. And we're going to take a look at all those together. It's Acts chapter 13. Let me put up on the screen, or let's have put up on the screen kind of our map. 
that I'm using for. This isn't about a map, but I think it helps to see and keep in touch with a couple things. I'll point out, you see Jerusalem over to the left. We're looking west from the Middle East. You see Antioch, Syria. Uh, that's where we were last Sunday there. You can see some of the other things. Paul goes to Cyprus. I'll make mention of that in just a second here. Modern-day Turkey. You can see North a- Northern Africa there and various places. That's kind of it gives you a little bit of a ground as we move along in the text here. Let's begin on a Sabbath. It's uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let's start there. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which is on uh, uh, Cyprus, and come to Perga in Pamphylia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Verse 14, but they went on, they being Paul and Barnabas, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Let me lay a couple of items here along with that. One of the things we see here in verse 13 is this unique movement that Luke makes in his writing. Uh, He makes a shift in names. Uh, Paul, as you can see in verse 13, is listed first. It says Paul and his companions. It doesn't even say Paul and Barnabas. All the way up to this point, it's always been Barnabas first. Uh, We talked last Sunday, Barnabas, who is in Antioch, Syria, goes to Tarsus to get uh, Paul and bring him back, builds up this team of five teacher prophets, beginning of Acts chapter 13, to be able to raise and train this local church in Antioch, Syria. And it's from there that they decide that to send Paul and Barnabas uh, on out. It's always been Barnabas first, but here it comes to uh, Paul being named first. Uh, I I just love that. I'm going to make a comment on it later here in a minute, a few minutes, but uh, just keep that in mind. A shift is happening here, and it's really a sweet, very cool thing. Also, uh, we find here in the text, or, or coming from last Sunday, they traveled from Antioch, Syria to Cyprus. They go there, they do ministry on the island of Cyprus, and then in verse 13, they sail from Cyprus uh, from over to Perga in Pamphylia. It's about a 112-mile sailboat ride, which sounds horrific to me. I'm not a guy that's on the ocean. So God bless all you who love the ocean. It was made for fish. (laughs) I'm a chicken, fully admit it. Uh, And then we find there in Perga, uh, John Mark, John Mark leaves them. It's interesting, we're not told here why. Luke doesn't tell us why, he just says that he leaves. In fact, the verb that Luke uses here, it can just mean that he left, it's normal leaving. It could be for a good reason, it could be for a not good reason, it could be for a health reason, it could be for at home, there's a need at home. We don't know why. The word could also carry a sense of abandon. We'll learn more about that as we move along. Acts 15 talks about that. But uh, John Mark leaves, and it's just Paul and Barnabas. But I'll note this. Paul and Barnabas move on. They continue on going. The gospel is continuing. Paul and Barnabas have a unique uh, ministry uh, weight to bear in taking the gospel uh, into these territories. Uh, We're told that they go from Perga to Antioch, Pisidia. This is a different Antioch. Uh, It's 100 miles from uh, where they came over and landed on the shore. It's about 3,600 foot level, so over 100 miles. They uh, climbed a little bit. Uh, In it, uh, I'll just note this, no car, no bus, no train. I mean, this is like most likely walking uh, with what's going on. The city, Antioch Pisidia, this is a major city. It's important to know with what takes place in the text here. 
Antioch City is not some, you know, nice, cute little country bumpkin kind of a place. It was a leading city in the region of Galatia. It was made a Roman colony by Caesar Augustus in 25 BC. It's a civil military uh, center of the province, okay? It's a civil military center of the province. And by the way, we're going to see here in just a second, there's a heavy Jewish population um, with what we'll see here. So, verse 14, they come in, they're in this city, first Sabbath day, They go in, and what do they do? They go to the synagogue, and they sit down on the first Sabbath day that they're there. Now, this is the normal thing. We've already seen it with Paul and Barnabas in uh, Salamis on uh, Cyprus, uh, verse 5, chapter 13. They go in. It's the first place that they go to proclaim uh, the word of God. We'll see that. Now, uh, know this. There's an order that typically was followed through in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And this will make sense in just a second. Let me tell you the order. There are generally five things that were part of the order of service. How many? There are five things. The first was called the Shema prayer. The Shema prayer came out of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. And it was common that that was almost like the New Testament Lord's Prayer, if you will. And that would be the beginning of the service. Oftentimes they'd have some other parts of the Torah that they might kind of in a prayer fashion include there. And then they would have Torah readings. So they'd have the Shema prayer. They'd have Torah readings. Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have reading out of that. Then they would have some reading from the prophets a little later in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Then there would be a priestly blessing. And then would come a word of exhortation or would be called a word of encouragement. And that's essentially, in the synagogue, it would be kind of let out for one of the men to be able to give a doctrine, a doctrinal or exhortational kind of teaching moment in that time with it. Keep that in mind because that's going to come up here in the text. In fact, let's see it now. Verse 15 and 16. Verse 15. After the reading from the law... They're in the synagogue, it's Sabbath day, and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, sent a text message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said. Before we go into what he said, just a couple items with that I think are worth noting. So here they are in the synagogue. They go to the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath day, the normal practice, and they know in the process of the movement of the service of the day. Remember, Paul grew up as a, uh, as a Jew in the synagogue. He was one of the leading guys of it. Uh, by the way, Barnabas, we know, although he grew up on the island of Cyprus, he was a Levite. He had familiar territory with what's going on. And I can just see these guys as the synagogue service is moving through. They're just waiting for item number five to come to the table. And that's where it's like, does anybody have a word of encouragement? And, and here they are in this, I mean, they're, they're just probably drooling, waiting, got one, got one in this with what's taking place. We're going to see what that is here, but as the movement, Paul stood up. I'm going to note that's interesting to me. Why didn't Barnabas stand up? 
Why was it Paul, not Barnabas? I don't know if we know for sure in this, but there's a couple interesting things about this. One of the things is Barnabas would be a perfect guy to be able to stand up. He was a Levite, grew up on the island of Cyprus, which is more Gentile territory, which is where they're at. He understood that kind of synagogue culture with what was going on. Also, Barnabas' name, we are told, means son of encouragement. So it's kind of like, uh, and he lived it for sure. It's kind of like, hey, does anybody have a word of encouragement? Uh, I am the son of that, <laughs> right? And uh, he's set up for it all, and yet in this, Paul is the one who stands up. I was reading... This quote by, his name is Ajith Fernando. He's a former national director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. He was that for 35 years, and he said this, four words. Encouragers hand over leadership. Encouragers hand over leadership. I'm just going to tell you personally, that was huge for me. By nature, by gifting, Karen, I've talked about this for years, I'm an encourager. When I teach, I just want to encourage you. I want to motivate you to see God and see his word. That's what drives me. I love to encourage people. And one of the things sometimes in that is I've seen the same things for me. I love passing things off to people. And here Barnabas is the kind of guy, he's like, I think he's sitting there and he's like, Paul, you got it, man. And Paul stands up and I think Barnabas is like, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is the guy. He is taught under the rabbi Gamaliel, who is the, one of the best known rabbis in all of Jewishdom at the time. And Paul has that training. And, and Paul, by the way, has seen the risen Savior was radically redeemed in Christ when he wasn't even looking to come to know Christ, was looking to persecute those who loved Christ. And he's like, Paul, it's teed up. And he stands up, and I gotta say, I think Barnabas is just like, I am loving this. It's so sweet. This is kind of the gifting how God has put people together. I think there's even a succession moving here in what's taking place. It's a sweet moment. So Paul stands up. Remember, he's in the synagogue. He's where it's, they are people who are looking for the Messiah. We say that again. They are people who are in a place right now who are looking for the Messiah. And Paul and Barnabas are asking if they have a word of encouragement. Yeah. Here they go. Here Paul goes. Men of Israel, and you who fear God. By the way, that is most likely a statement that is tying himself to, I'm speaking to those that are Jews in the room, and I'm speaking to those who are Gentiles who are following Jewish Judaism in the moment. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. 
And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. By the way, let's pause there just a Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul has addressed them, and Paul is going back in history with them. He's grabbing history with them, the thing that is so meaningful to them. He's tying it to them. He's relating it to them. By the way, friends, history matters. And he's bringing it in here. Verse 20, all this took place about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. If you're new to the Bible and you don't know the Old Testament, you are in a few minutes getting an entire flyover of the Old Testament. And by the way, note one of the things also that Paul is doing here. Everything that he is talking about is not what man has done. It is talking about what God has done. Okay, and in fact, in it, it's God made the people great. God is the one who chose our, our fathers. God is the one who led them out. God is the one who put up with them. God is the one who destroyed the nations. God is the one who gave them land. God is the one who gave them judges, okay? He is, has a high view of who God is through history. History and God's redeeming work matters, verse 20. All this took 450 years. He gave Samuel the prophet, verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he, God, raised up David. Oh, when they heard David, they were like, bing, 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 totally got me now. By the way, remember, we just finished the Gospel of Matthew. The very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew says, this is Jesus Christ from the line of David, from the line of Abraham. History matters. And Paul knows that from his own heritage, and he's bringing that in. Verse 22, and he had removed him. Uh, he raised up, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will, this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Pause. So he's speaking in a synagogue to those that are looking for the coming Savior, and he's moving it right there. Hey, Paul, do you have a word of encouragement? Oh, I do. And in fact, I can fill in the blank as to who the Savior is. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, John the baptizer, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not even worthy to untie. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham. And they're all going, amen. And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophecies, prophets, which are, are read every Sabbath. They're on a Sabbath. 
fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down to the tree and laid him in a tomb. He's telling what happened in Jerusalem. Remember after the resurrection of Christ, they tried to hide what happened? Here are people over in modern-day Turkey who are now most likely for the first time hearing about the Savior and what the real story happened. And they laid him in a tomb, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised of the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us in their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. By the way, I love this. He's going back and grabbing scripture and bringing it to bear on the situation. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. Here's the application. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, is justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers from the Old Testament, be astonished and perished. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Let's grab some things here from this text here that's going on and what Paul's doing. Number one, Paul is telling the grand story. Friends, have you noticed that people are wondering what in the world is going on? There's actually an answer to that. If you understand the grand story of what Scripture says of what God is doing, you actually can answer that. God is taking everything along and moving it right where he wants it to. But I don't like the way God's doing it. Hey, I kind of get you on some of that. But here's the wonderful thing. God is moving all things along. And if we don't understand the grand narrative, we will never understand the small narrative of which we live in. And Paul is helping them understand the whole narrative of what's happening. And then he's bringing the fact of Jesus Christ coming into that. These are people that are waiting for the Messiah, and Paul is telling them the Messiah has come. That's a big deal. That's like a crazy big deal. That's the grand story. Here's one of the cool things out of it. Today, we have the full, complete word of God that actually tells us more than they ever knew. Because not only do we know the story of the past, we're told the story into the future. 
And we have the story. It is important. The grand story is critical to understanding the present story. I'm also going to note in this, he talks about justification and judgment. The gospel story of Jesus Christ includes the story of justification. Look at verse 39. Let it be known that through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. You see, these are people in the setting who have the thinking that if we follow the law correctly, if we get close enough, then Lord willing, it'll all turn out well. I gotta tell you, that's a horrible place to live because it's all based on you. It's all based upon the justification of how good you are. And I'm glad we never lived that way. Like, here's the truth. Every week we have a tendency to live that way. And there is a tendency, even, in this, even if you've been redeemed by Christ, justified by Christ, there's still this thing within us that we love to live by the law. And we think that if this week was an 8 out of 10 following God, that God then loves us 8 out of 10. But if it's a bad week and it's been a tour, if it's been a two-wall week, it's the kind of thing where God only loves us 2 out of 10. Friends, good news. That is not how it works. You see, in the text, it tells us that we are freed from everything, freed from the ramifications of sin. Do we still wrestle with it? Absolutely. But from the condemnation, the judgment of sin, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've received Christ as your Savior, you have been justified by the work of Christ. Your tablet, your account of sins has been reconciled. It has been rewritten, crossed off, and not only are you forgiven of sins, but the fact out of this is the righteousness of Christ is placed in your account. So when God looks upon you, he doesn't see us as we are. He sees the full righteousness of the one that covers us. I'm all for living under that sheet. The covering of Christ. That's what's taking place. And Paul sitting there is like, oh, I got a good word for you. You don't have to live this way anymore. The one has come. And he has made the provision for full freedom before God. Man, that's a word. By the way, there's also in this, there's a judgment. Listen, friends, the gospel's serious stuff. It brings justification beyond what we, uh, it's not candy justification, it's complete, full God, Jesus Christ justification. But also in this, he brings in the reality, verses 40 and 41, he says, beware. Beware, because um, those who don't, come to hear and, or those who don't receive what is being heard, there's a consequence. There, that means you are not justified. That means you are in trouble. That's actually not a harsh word. That's a loving thing to say. If we're seeing someone heading off a cliff, the most unloving thing is to say, just keep walking. In fact, you're a really good person walking off the cliff. What's with that? Hey, there's a cliff. 
And there's an awesome word to save you from going off that cliff. Beware. Jesus did the same thing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. After all this wonderful teaching, and he says, there are many who will call me Lord, Lord, but I will say I never knew you. Why? Follow the illustration at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about two houses relating to the two people. It's not about the sand and the stone on that, by the way. That's in Corinthians. It's actually about the two houses. He tells there's two kinds of people. There's the kind of person who hears the gospel and walks away, and it's kind of uh, doesn't really change anything in their life. It's not applied. It's really not received. It's really not taken in. It's, there's no abiding that's going on. And he says, when the winds and the storm and the seas hit, great is the fall of that house. Judgment is coming. And the most loving thing that I could say today is that. The scriptures say that judgment is coming. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't have Christ as your Savior, I lovingly say, you're in trouble, friend. You're in big trouble. And yet the second house, he says, but the one who hears and does these words. In other words, the one who hears and receives and abides in Christ out of that, who receives the gospel work of Jesus Christ. It's not that there are no winds. It's not that there are no storms. It's when the winds come. It's when the storms come. Both houses have that. But in the winds and the storm, that one stands. And it stands not because that person is great. It stands because they have come to know and receive the one that is great. Justification and judgment. Hey, Paul and Barnabas, you got a word of encouragement for us? Oh yeah, I got one that'll turn your lives inside out and upside down. By the way, in this, I'm just going to make this comment. The Old Testament matters. The Old Testament matters. We even live in a day and age where Kind of some various individuals are kind of saying, you know what, the Old Testament really isn't all that relevant. Oh, I'm so out on that. The Old Testament matters. In fact, if you look in your update, we have a class coming up on a survey of the Old Testament. If you're kind of a person who's like, you know what, I don't really know the Old Testament very well. By the way, I'm not saying can you state all the books of the Old Testament in order because I can't. <gasps> Yeah, listen, when I get to the minor prophets, go to the content page, man. That's what I do. I was encouraged by that when one of my profs had to do that. Um, We're going to have a class on that. You can see that in there coming. I want to encourage you. Jump in that class. It'll help tell the grand story. The other thing you can see in the update as well is we have coming up Saturday, September 28th, a, a forum. It's by Dr. Brent Oakwin, uh, that Saturday from 9 to 11.30, and it's going to be on, oh, the Old Testament matters. Uh, Karen and I have known Brent and his wife for over 20 years now. Uh, early 90s, I knew Brent when we were uh, taking some, uh, some conference up in Lafayette, Indiana. Brent was a student working on his master's at Purdue. Let me just kind of let you know a little bit about Brent. He was in the aeronautical engineering program at Purdue, and he was the number one student in the class. Uh, Smart. It was right in that period of time where Brent uh, actually then decided to go into ministry. And I had the blessing to be able to be an assistant pastor along with him up at Faith Church in Lafayette for five years. Brent is one of the best disciple-making pastors I've ever met in my life. Brent loves the Old Testament, has his PhD in the Old Testament. He's president of the faith seminary there that all of our guys, or four of our guys, have gone through with their MDiv programs. He's going to be here that Saturday. I commend it to you. You'll want to be here. The Old Testament matters. Done with a plug. 
verses 42 and 43. I wonder what the conversation in the lobby at the synagogue is going to be. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. How cool is that? And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, by the way, this is following during the time that they're there, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Why would Paul and Barnabas be con- encourage them to continue in the grace of God? Because they've been raised up with the thinking of you live by the law of God. And they're helping them reboot their thinking. It's not by the law, it's by grace. And then we come to another Sabbath day, verse 44, the next Sabbath. So that means Paul and Barnabas have been in town at the most like 13 days, at the most. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. (laughs) And this was no bumpkin, small little town. Almost the whole city came, and God works in ways that only God can work. The whole city gathered to hear, by the way, hear what? Isn't that cool? Not to hear Paul, not to hear Barnabas, but to hear the word of the Lord. But, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict What was spoken by Paul reviling him sounds like the same thing that happened in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas in that situation spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's Old Testament, by the way. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. (laughs) Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout, how far? That's beyond the city. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. A few comments here. In verses 44 to 50. Number one, people need to hear the word of the Lord. And by the way, people want to hear the word of the Lord. We live in a day and age where it's really interesting with what's going on, even in church world. Here in our country and countries around the world. I don't understand the whole thing about it's like so often it's read a verse and then go talk about what they want to talk about. I just want to tell you, we're a church that goes to the God's word. That's what we want to be, because why is that? Because that's what I want to be. I want to be a man of the word. I want us to be people of the word, because the word is the thing that has answers, right? Yeah, but Stephen Hawking said. Yeah, but Pastor Blankety Blank said. Yeah, but uh, Mom and Dad said. Yeah, but Dr. Phil said. Yeah, but I say. Can I just say this? Awesome, but it's the word. 
It is the word of God that trumps over all those other people. It is the word of God, and know this, people want to hear the word of God. We live in a world where it's kind of like we got to feel like we got to candy coat the word of God, wrap it in all this little wrapping present stuff, and it's more like, hey, why are you here? You're here because you want to worship the Lord, and you want to hear what God, has, his word has to say. And if I can say this, if, if you're not used to bringing your Bible to church, I understand that, but can I encourage you to consider bringing your Bible to church? Because I'm telling you, you learn more when you have it in front of you even if it's digital. When life comes along, let's be people who ask the question first of, I wonder what God has to say about that. When we're going through difficulties of life, when we're struggling with life issues, with life scenarios, might it be a good idea that the first thing we think about is, I wonder what God's word has to say about that. I'm just kind of saying, uh, how about we just bring God's word into things and like major on it and, and, and make that part of it. God has gifted his people to be able to speak wisdom, but I want to tell you this, it's got to be grounded in God's word. And so we want to be people who are bringing wisdom to the table. We want to be people who are putting God's word fully on the table together in it. And then this comment here in verse 46, we're turning to the Gentiles. I want to say I don't believe that this is a, an absolute turning, like we're done talking to Jews because of the rejection of Christ. I don't think that's what's happening at all because we're actually going to see in Acts as it moves along that Paul and Barnabas, one of the very first things they do is they go and they talk to the Jews in the synagogues. This is a pattern for them. But there is something that is happening here. It's kind of like this is enough. This is enough of having rejected it that, that Peterson says what we find now is not so much a shift of strategy as a focus on Paul reaching out to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. It is about Gentiles taking precedence in his mind. By the way, God has always been about the whole world. In fact, the field goal verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the What? It's always been about the world. It was always about the world with Abraham. It was always about the world with David. It was always about the world, uh, Moses, with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And God is telling them, I want to raise you up in a land as a nation of priests to the world. It's always been about the world. And yet here in it, there's this statement uh, that uh, there is a precedence upon taking it. And, and one, as a Gentile, I say, thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for that. Verse 48, as many as were pointed to eternal life believed. Now there's a great small group conversation. And I leave that in your hand. I will say this. The verb there, tasso, form of it, which means appointing, which means choosing, which means assigning, is in the perfect passive. Perfect passive means that it's been done by God. Let's carry that in. So, Pastor Doug, are you saying that people don't choose the Lord? No, the scriptures say, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So then you're not on this. No, I'm on both. And there, I just went into it. I can't stay away from it. It has to be one. No, it doesn't. Talk about it in small group. Last two verses and we're done. Verse 51. 
they shook the dust off from their feet as they left town, headed to Iconium. Iconium next week, it's about 90 miles away, and they're headed out of town. Um, Matthew 10, verse 14, Jesus told the apostles, he said, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it is more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that day. So Paul and Barnabas shake their shoes off. But here's what's really intriguing about this. The next verse. You kind of leave that and it's like, I'll say in modern day church planting world, they've been there for a week and a half to two weeks at the most. And so often we would go, there was a ministry failure. I want to tell you friends, we measure things wrongly. Because look at the next verse. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The question is, is who's the disciples? Who's the antecedent of that? Who's the one who's touched to that? In this, it's, I'll tell you, I think as I've dug into this, it has the potential to mean every, all of the disciples. It has the potential, I think, most likely, it's talking about those that just came to Christ in that town. So here, Paul and Barnabas are leaving town. They've been there for a week and a half of ministry, and they... they shake the dust off, not with their hands, but with their feet. They, they shake the dust off of their feet. They head on out, but I don't think they're angry. I don't think they're looking back on anything like that. I think when they're in this whole thing, they're shaking the dust off because of what's taken place, because of his statement and the reality with the Jews. But I actually think they are leaving full of joy. Why? Because over here, you've got people who have been looking for the Messiah, just got word of the Messiah, have come to know Christ as their Savior, and they are jazzed up. They are filled with joy because they have come to know that the Messiah has come and brought redemption, and it is in Jesus Christ, and in knowing Jesus Christ, we are justified. We are freed from the law. We, we are, are, are made right before God in that. And it's like, woo! And we know out of Scripture that when a person comes to know Christ, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. They're empowered with the Holy Spirit. So here it is. You learn about this. Paul and Barnabas are saying goodbye. They're over here, not in this thing like, oh no, the great teachers are gone. What do we do? They're heading out, and I think they're going like, rocket guys, Rock it out for Christ. And they're in here like, we are, we're gonna. Because God has put us here. Let me finish with this observation. They did not take all of them. They left them there. They have a unique ministry of going on and communicating and leaving the ones to their world. By the way, that includes us. So often I've heard Acts taught through and I walk away feeling so guilty like I'm supposed to be Paul and Barnabas. Listen, that's a unique gifting. The fact of the matter is most of us, 98 whatever percent of us, are here in our world to be doing ministry here. Yes, we're to be like them, but God has placed us where we're at in our world with the gospel to people. And that's what we want to be, right? Abiding in Christ, spirit-dependent to our world. And know this, when we are to our world here, God will work in us to take our, us to his world beyond. I'm going to leave it there. 
and we're going to take communion. In fact, I'm going to ask for the communion service if you would get in place here. And uh, we're going to finish our time today with communion. And I want our time to be of communion to be noted with joy. Okay? I want us to send ourselves out, taking communion together, joy in the Lord. Because that's what's happened here in this text. And so, as the communion servers come and get in place, and they have the, the bread and the, and, and the drink, if you would grab that and bring it back to your seat. If you know Christ as your Savior, this is something for you to participate in. This is something to rejoice in. To remember that you are no longer held to your own effort and works. Out with that. In with the grace of God. Whole new account statement. Your balance sheet is looking sweet because it's been made that by Jesus Christ, not by you, not by me. And is all that because Christ went to the cross in our place to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he died. And then he was raised again, conquering sin and death. And so when we take communion, we're celebrating that reality, right? If you know Christ, when you're ready, you come, you grab the cup, and we're going to do it joyfully and joyously.